queer life in Montreal was wild. Montreal in the 90s was a great time, but it had a dark side. It was not a safe city for gay people back then. But what else was behind a series of deaths in the city? Somebody's killing gay men. We want to know why. I'm Francis Plourde, and this is The Village, The Montreal Murders. Get early access to episodes at cbc.ca slash listen or by subscribing to the CBC True Crime Premium channel on Apple Podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Welcome to The Dose. By now, you've likely heard a lot of talk about a COVID-19 vaccine. By some estimates, there are more than 100 different vaccines in development around the world. And given that we're all anxious to return to a normal life where we can safely gather in groups, go to concerts, or hug our elderly parents or grandparents, that's good news. But the hard truth is developing a viable vaccine doesn't happen overnight, and it shouldn't. It takes time, a lot of time, to ensure that a vaccine is safe and that it works, and scientists have to go through a rigorous and sometimes lengthy process to make that happen. In the meantime, it's difficult to separate the real, legitimate hope from the hype in the headlines that I know you've been reading, and they don't always tell you the whole story. The bottom line is we all want a sense of when a vaccine will be available and how close we might actually be. So today on The Dose, we're talking to Natasha Crowcroft, a vaccine expert at the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Dr. Crowcroft has more than two decades of experience as a public health physician and researcher, and she's an expert advisor with the World Health Organization. Today, she'll help us answer the question, I want life to get back to normal. How close are we to an effective vaccine against COVID-19? Hi, Dr. Crowcroft. Welcome to The Dose. Hi, thank you for having me on the show. Let's start with some perspective. How long does it normally take to develop a vaccine? So normally it takes years and years and years. I mean, 10 years would not be unusual based on the history of the vaccines that we, we have developed in the past. I think the fastest we've gone has probably been the four years we took to develop a mumps vaccine. Um, but generally it takes a long time. Um, the problem with looking backwards, though, is that the world is changing before our eyes and we're at a point in scientific development we've never been at before. So there are limitations to using what's happened in the past to try and figure out what's going to happen in the future. So how does the process in the past, looking back, as you've said, compare with the global effort that we're seeing right now? It's absolutely astonishing what's happening right now. It's been really interesting reading what's sort of what people have been writing about vaccines and how the tone of the conversation really varies. I've been very positive and optimistic, whereas other people have been much more, you know, sounding a note of caution and saying, I, I've seen people recently saying, oh, well, we're misleading people to say that things are going to get solved very rapidly. Um, for me, I, I think the situation now is different in so many ways. I mean, the way in which the, the, the COVID-19, the virus that causes COVID-19 was sequenced so quickly by the Chinese, people jumped on it. And then we can take the sequence of a virus and look at it and say, within a matter of weeks, well, we think this is the part of the virus we need to focus on to make a vaccine. We just haven't been able to do with that kind of speed or accuracy in the past. Um, and then you said in your intro, you know, over a hundred vaccines are now under development around the world um, in, in a matter of months. I mean, that 
that is astonishing. Nothing in the history of humankind has ever been seen like this before. So for the people who love to fast forward, what's our best case scenario for a vaccine to be ready for the general public? So um, there's kind of two parts to that. You know, at the rate we're going, I think that the, those sorts of estimates of, of it being somewhere in 2021 is not an unreasonable hope that there would be a vaccine that could be used in someone in the general public. The problem is really between having a vaccine that could be used in somebody in you or I and having a, enough of it, <laughs> there's quite a big gap there. You know, potentially we're looking at trying to immunize. It could be like everyone on this planet. We don't know. It depends on what the vaccine is actually like, how it performs, um, how it works and what it does. So, you know, if you're talking about immunizing 7 billion people, you know, making that much vaccine is, is again, something we have never done in, in the history of humankind. So to put this in context, 18 months to two years sounds like forever when our lives are on hold, but that's actually breakneck speed when you look at the history of vaccine development. Yes, that's a really good way of putting it. It's breakneck speed. And I think the important thing there for people to understand is that it, this isn't going to be a magic one that's going to arrive tomorrow. And so that's why we're doing everything we're doing right now to try and contain this virus. That critical take-home information, uh, I'm going to want to uh, have you reemphasize that at the end because I think you're absolutely right about that, that, we're, that, that meanwhile – we still have to deal with the here and now and the fact that we're, we're going to be passing through waves of, of, of COVID-19. Um, but, you know, the fact that there are vaccines in development gives us, you know, a lot of hope. Um, you know, we've talked about 100 vaccines, but tell us about some of the vaccine trials that, that are showing the most promise right now, in your opinion. Sure. So there's a small number of vac uh, vaccines that are really moving forward at the front of the pack. Three in particular have had a lot of attention Um that are already being tried in humans. There's a vaccine in the States made by a company called Moderna. Um, that's a, a vaccine that is uh, an mRNA vaccine. So um, this is one of the other really exciting things for vaccinologists that we're, we're actually using new tools within this vaccine development process. In fact, and, the Moderna... And, and so what do you mean by mRNA vaccine? Yeah, so the mRNA, in order to make things from your DNA, you need a, a messenger system that, that translates what's in the DNA into the action. And the mRNA is the messenger. It's the thing that, that reads your DNA and then makes what the DNA is instructing us uh, that we need. This mRNA vaccine is what it does is rather than injecting somebody with an antigen. So an antigen in a vaccine is the bit that stimulates your body to make antibodies. Most vaccines protect through antibodies and we have to teach your body to respond to make these antibodies. And so in case of mRNA, rather than using the antigen, we use the code for the antigen. So we use the messenger information to teach your body and to, to, to make the actual antigen. So it's really a very different approach. We can make these mRNA vaccines very easily and in very different environments very quickly. And so they, they hold enormous promise as a type of vaccine. And here we are for the first time actually making them for humans. Now, other vaccines that are being trialed use the more traditional viral antigen approach that you were mentioning. And one has a Canadian connection. Can you tell us about that? Yes. And that's another one of the front runners for, for a vaccine. They've used um, a, 
a virus vector. So they use an adenovirus, which is a virus that causes another virus that causes colds in humans. So into the adenovirus, they insert the genetic material for the coronavirus. And so they make this common cold virus into a carrier for the antigen that I was talking about earlier. So it makes this virus that otherwise wouldn't cause us any significant problems, create, generate this, the antigen that will simulate antibodies in humans. And uh, they have been doing human trials in, in China, and they're now going to be doing some trials, starting trials in Canada. Having Canada involved in as many of these trials as possible is, is really good for the country in terms of actually getting access to the vaccines once they start going into production. When the vaccine has developed to the point, the vaccine candidate that is, has developed to the point where it can be tested in humans, do you, do you vaccinate people and then expose them deliberately to COVID-19? Or do you just vaccinate them and send them out into the community and just, you know, compare them to a population that wasn't vaccinated and see who gets COVID and who doesn't? Right. So that's a really, really brilliant question. Um, and it's it's very hard for, for this particular um, virus. I mean, if, if you have a virus with a treatment, you can expose people to it and see what happens and then treat them if they get sick. Um, uh, but that, you know, that's can't generally, do that here. you can't do that here. And we know, you know, this, even in young, healthy people, this can be very, a very serious infection. Unfortunately, this virus is going to be around for a while. So I, I think what's going to happen is we'll start using the vaccine and then you know we will have to tr approve it on the basis probably of these correlates of protection you know that we that based on the antibodies that are generated and uh, the cell mediated immunity the white cell response that these vaccines produce uh, based on those measures we will approve vaccines for use and then it'll be a question of let's wait and see what happens to people and, and not in a very passive way i think we'll have to be very actively following up. And we have to do that anyway. We, we always have to check vaccines are working in the field. Uh, that's why we need really good public health um, surveillance and monitoring. We need to know who's vaccinated and we need to know who's getting sick. And if they do get sick, were they vaccinated or not? So we've done studies like that, a lot of studies like that in Canada to figure out how well the vaccines are working. Um, and because vaccines generally have to work for years and years, that work needs to go on for years and years to make sure that people remain protected. Um, it's really important to get this in, in, into the arms of people, uh, as many people as possible on the planet. How do we do that? I'm really glad you said planet because obviously what we really want to do is control this virus around the world because there's no point in controlling it in Canada if it's not controlled in the US and everyone's so connected, that's how it got here in the first place. So it needs to be controlled in China, it needs to be controlled in the whole African region and everywhere. Otherwise, it'll come back. So there was at the recent World Health Assembly um, a, a consensus statement about we're all in this together and we need, we need to work towards equity and access so that everybody has access to vaccines. It's a noble aspiration. They're just very, they're huge practical problems. Um, if you think of some of the childhood vaccines in, in infants, we're we're getting to somewhere like mid 80s percent coverage for the whole world in infants for those vaccines, but that's only in infants. So we've never done anything that involved vaccinating 7 billion people. Um, what we do have in our favor is 
the basic reproduction number of this this virus is somewhere between two and three. And that means that we don't actually have to vaccinate everybody. And it, this depends a bit on the vaccine. But if you have a really good vaccine, then you know we may be able to um, control it with only vaccinating maybe 60 or 70 percent of the population. You know, it just depends on how effective the vaccine is. That would reduce some of the manufacturing challenges. But from a from a public health perspective, this it raises some really really interesting questions about what the strategy is going to be, and that depends on on the characteristics of the vaccine that we or the vaccines that we end up using. Sick Boy Podcast is a health and comedy show about what it's like to be sick. Wait, is that right? How can illness be funny? You'd be surprised. Okay. Sick Boy is hosted by me, Brian Stever. And me, Taylor McGilvery. And myself, Jeremy Saunders. Come on in and join us to melt your heart, learn something fascinating, and bust a belly laugh. Trust us, you'll be glad you did. You can find Sick Boy on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your pods. You know, so so okay. The good news is is that uh, seven billion people on the planet, maybe four point two to five billion of them, need to be vaccinated. Who says they're going to roll up their sleeves? We're already starting to see misinformation campaigns on social media. I want to know how concerned you are about that. Oh, it's amazing, isn't it? Like I, I remember, we we did a survey during the um, two thousand nine influenza pandemic, asking uh, people in Ontario whether they would take a pandemic vaccine during a huge media storm about pandemic influenza. And at the time, we didn't know how bad it was going to be. And at that point, something like 40% of people said, no, they wouldn't have the vaccine. And we were like astonished because it's Ontario where people are generally, you know, pretty compliant with public health advice. But we are really facing a major, major challenge. And unless our public health leaders can generate a lot of trust, it's going to be very, very difficult. Um, and we need to start preparing for it right now. We really do need to start, you know, having those discussions with communities and building relationships so that they do trust in their leaders when they say, right, we're rolling out this vaccine and here's why we, we trust that this vaccine is safe and this is why we think it's going to protect you. Um, and these are the people we're going to give it to first. Maybe the fact that this is a, a more severe infection will help um i don't know how it's going to pan out but um i'm not sure we're doing everything we everything we can yet to prepare and let's not forget the sneaky bot side you know that that there's actually some data now that suggests that a lot of the misinformation a lot of the negative messages about a potential vaccine on social media are coming from bot twitter accounts yes um thank goodness that you know, organizations like Facebook and Twitter, um, you know, Pinterest was one of the first, have actually taken this seriously and are trying to do something about it. But they, you know, with limited success, partly because some of these groups are so tightly networked, they've just kind of gone underground. Um, uh, it was fascinating to see what was happening in the States where the go back to work protests were being linked with the anti-vaccine groups at a time when we don't even have a coronavirus vaccine yet, you know, and they're already out there linking up with new groups. I always go back to my overwhelming faith in humanity that most people are really sensible and listen to good advice. It's really easy to be overwhelmed by some of the stuff you hear from extreme groups and think that that's what everybody's thinking. But actually, when it comes down to it, you know, it's like like with the, the routine immunization program for kids in this country. Most parents 
follow the advice of their physician and get their kids vaccinated and don't think twice about it. You know, we, I don't want to overdo it, but I, I think there are some special circumstances here that will make it particularly tricky. Is it, you know, the fact that this is a pandemic and, and it has led to all kinds of, of losses and, and dislocations and death, people losing their jobs, the fact that this is a pandemic unlike anything we have seen in our lifetimes, surely that's going to make a difference in persuading people that they should roll up their sleeves. I think it's going to make a huge difference to most people, absolutely. You know, you can see with as people get exhausted by the first wave of lockdown and how desperate they are to get outside, you know, at this stage, well, what's it going to be like in a year's time? Um, you know, we don't really know what, where people's heads are going to be at. And if a vaccine is really seen as the exit strategy and the route back to normal life, that could really put, you know, wind in our sails to mix metaphors terribly, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Get me out of here. Give me that vaccine. I want to get back to hugging my friends and uh, going out and enjoying life in bigger groups and you know, back in the office, back earning a decent living. So, um, But I think when it comes to the anti-vaxxers, they're not going anywhere. One of the things that has really helped in the narrative that I've observed with interest over the past few years has been how the press has changed. You know, journalists are going out and finding the faults in the anti-vaccine arguments and publishing great stories. People understand the context much better, how high the, the stakes are, you know, that kids' lives are at stake um, for routine immunization. And then, of course, for uh, the COVID-19 vaccine, this is going to be everyone's lives at stake, um, but particularly our seniors. It you know as I listen to you, it, you sound optimistic that if there is one positive thing to come out of the pandemic, it's a, it's a reminder about why vaccines are so important and what happens when we don't have one. I am optimistic. Yes, I think this is an astonishing time for vaccines. Everybody's learned so much. I think the public understanding of science has gone up, which is wonderful, and the amazing opportunities we have to save lives with vaccines. I think we'll get there and we've got to keep that thought in our heads because people are talking about peaks in this pandemic. It's not one peak. It's a mountain range we have to get across. This is a long journey, but we will get there. And and finally then, put that public health doctor hat back on right now. What do we need to keep in mind right now uh, in the absence of a COVID-19 vaccine as we wait for it to be developed? So right now, uh, we can look around the world and see what works for containing this virus. You know, people do have to get on with their lives. The economy does have to move forward. And so we have to do that whilst protecting life. So we have to be testing widely and we have to be isolating anybody who's who's infected and all of their contacts need to be quarantined for two weeks strictly. So that means that our public health system needs to be really strong. Right now, my public health colleagues are very tired, so we need resources in there to keep that going and even ramp it up because I think we're going to see more peaks ahead of us. Thank you very much, Dr. Natasha Crowcroft, for updating us on vaccine developments and telling us what we need to do right now to try to get through that mountain range. 
Thank you, Brian. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. It's been a pleasure speaking with you too, Natasha. Stay safe. You too. Bye then. Bye now. That's Dr. Natasha Crowcroft, a vaccine expert at the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Here's your dose of smart advice. There are about 100 vaccines in various stages of development, and some of the most advanced candidates are very promising. Some experts say this could be the fastest human vaccine in history because the science has developed rapidly to take us there. It's reasonable to predict that we could have a vaccine fit to be given to the public sometime in 2021. The next challenge will be to make enough doses to get 60 to 70% of the population vaccinated with the goal of herd immunity. The other challenge will be convincing those who are vaccine hesitant to roll up their sleeves. Already, misinformation campaigns are cropping up on social media platforms. Public health officials, doctors, and vaccine experts must develop effective ways to counter that. Finally, though a vaccine can't happen soon enough, Everyone must keep doing their part to deal with COVID-19. That's everything from washing hands to wearing masks to avoiding large gatherings. We're in this together. At The Dose, we'll continue to bring you the best information we can on COVID-19. If you have questions about the coronavirus, let us know what they are and we'll do our best to get you some answers. Email us at thedose at cbc.ca. You can tweet me at NightShiftMD or the other show I host at CBC White Coat. You can find The Dose and White Coat Blackheart wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Dose was produced by Nicole Ireland, Donna Dinglaw, and me, with support from Ariane Robinson and digital support from Fabiola Carletti. Thanks to Austin Pomeroy for his technical expertise. The Dose wants you to be better informed about your health, but if you're looking for medical advice, see your healthcare provider. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Until your next dose. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.